Hello folks. In this opening lecture, I want to focus specifically on Edmund Husserl's phenomenological method. By going through the steps of his method, it will help us to understand what Husserl was trying to accomplish with phenomenology, and how this laid the ground for Martin Heidegger to radicalise Husserl's thoughts. We should note at the outset that Heidegger bore an intellectual fidelity to Husserl's thought. So, it's not like I'm saying Husserl came up with the phenomenological method, which was great but ultimately defective, and then Heidegger came along to save the day. Heidegger always considered his work to be within the tradition of phenomenology, and thus an understanding of Husserl is indispensable for understanding Heidegger and his masterwork being in time. Now, to understand Husserl's phenomenological method, we need to do a couple of things. First and foremost, we need to engage self-consciously in the steps of the method themselves. Husserl saw phenomenology as something that was available to anybody. It was something anybody could do. Now, certainly, Husserl's technical exposition of that method is challenging, but at his core, he implores us to think for ourselves. And to think for ourselves, we need to look at what is under our noses, which for Husserl was the way things appear to consciousness. And to do this, we need to think through how things appear to us as well as what the nature of those appearances themselves disclose. So, in this lecture, I want to explain some of the core steps of Husserl's method so as to help us to get a sense of what phenomenology is all about. To this end, uh, I explain what Husserl has to say about natural attitude, bracketing, reduction, givenness, the phenomenological attitude, and what it reveals about the nature of consciousness. All steps in the phenomenological method. In addition, I explain Husserl's discovery of intentionality, one of the most important elements of phenomenology. Part 1. The Natural Attitude In Husserl's logical investigations, the text which gives us the first real sustained reflections on what phenomenology entails, Husserl claims only immediate intuition can be the absolute norm or criterion for what can and cannot be said philosophically. At face value, this might seem a bit odd. Normally, we take intuition to be a weaker form of knowledge, something where we gain insight by virtue of, say, some nebulous sense, or mystical intuition, or grasping of the origin of what is, in fact, something obscure. However, when Husserl is talking about intuition, he doesn't really have that type of intuition in mind. For Husserl, whatever is given to consciousness is not to be taken as simply given, as if we would say that which we think about is true just because we intuit it. Rather, that which is given to consciousness, that is, that which appears to consciousness, must be assessed in its own terms, in itself, as something revelatory about the way we think about thinking. Husserl argued when examining any appearances to consciousness that we ought to bracket or suspend our assumptions about the natural world. This is what he called the epoche. If we suspend our natural belief about how the world is or exists, then we can work back through a phenomenological reduction from the way things appear to us in order to grasp the essential structures of consciousness. 
Husserl suggests there is an intuitive clarity to the way objects reveal themselves to conscious introspection. Husserl calls this the givenness of phenomena or evidence. Husserl's phenomenological analysis demonstrates many things about the operation of consciousness, including, but not limited to, the way consciousness is organised spatially, temporally, transcendentally, embodied and intentionally. And I'll talk about all these as I proceed. Husserl argues that all the different phases of consciousness hold an intentional relation to the world. In other words, as Husserl famously says, all consciousness is consciousness of something. The world is therefore implicit to our conscious acts to such a degree that consciousness and world are immediate to each other. But before we get to that point, we need to understand how we are in the world from the beginning. We need to understand how we naturally relate to our immediate sense certainty. This is what Husserl calls the natural attitude. If we take any object which appears to consciousness, and if we reflect on it, then we have begun the first step in the phenomenological method. We have thus drawn, thinkingly as well at this point, a distinction between appearing and the appeared, or between how the thing manifests to us, or shows itself to us, and the thing itself. So Husserl just wants you to, at this point, to think of how things appear, their pure manifestation. It doesn't really matter how things are in themselves right now. But because we can grasp a distinction between the appearance of things to consciousness and how things are in the world, this should indicate to us that our everyday relation to things is an unquestioning relation. When we go about our business in the world, going shopping, going for a meal, getting up to go to work, we take things as they are, which is to say we assume that the appeared world is real. This is the natural attitude. The natural attitude does one thing really well. It is fundamentally unquestioning. It is premised on one big assumption. What assumption might that be? The assumption is that the world exists. Now, well, of course the world exists, one might say. And Husserl agrees with that. The world does exist. After all, it's right there in front of us. But this really tells us nothing philosophically interesting only that we assume the world is the way it is, something which we take for granted. If you rush to work in the morning, you assume that the world exists. You put one foot in front of the other and you naturally expect that there will be ground beneath your feet. What Husserl is interested in is how we can step outside that natural attitude. The natural attitude, once we reflect on it, shows us that our everyday Non-thinking is, well, preconceptual. This is to say that it is replete with preconceived notions and assumptions about how the world is. But because such assumptions are unthinking, taken for granted, they do not really enable us to carry out any accurate descriptions of how the world is given. For Husserl, reality is to be described as it presents itself to us in direct experience. This is why... We need to attend to appearances, think about them, because these are the things which are given to us once we engage in an act of reflection. Things in themselves are not really given to us in themselves. The basic point about the natural attitude is that 
In everything we do, we assume and take for granted the existence of the world. We assume that the world exists, we assume objects in the world exist, and we assume that things are just the way they are. But if this is what we do, how then could we ever make a knowledge claim? How could we gain either any general understanding or even specific nuance about how we experience things? For Husserl, the natural attitude, while forming a backdrop to our immediate experience, is never just taken for granted. We always step outside of it by wondering about one thing or another. For example, Husserl suggests that one of the places where we tend to automatically question the natural attitude is when we have an encounter with something strange. So, for example, on your walk to work, the walk that you have walked for 10 years on the same route that you've taken for 10 years, and generally there are no major changes. You then, therefore, for who shall have a natural assumption that the world is like that, but then all of a sudden, one day, a sinkhole appears in the middle of the road. An event of this sort shows that while in the normal run of things we expect the world to behave as we normally experience it, the encounter with the strange jars us out of our assumed belief that the world exists as it presents itself to us. What is interesting for Husserl about the encounter with the strange is that we have the capacity to shift out of our everyday natural attitude. And this shows us that we that what we take for granted, we take for granted as if it were true. In fact, it is contingent. But this encounter with the strange is not methodologically satisfactory. In a sense, we're left a little hostile to fortune, as what is strange, by definition, is not customary and only takes place in limited situations. Husserl wants us to actively make things strange. He wants us to adopt a philosophical attitude, or better, a phenomenological attitude, where we actively and self-consciously suspend our tacit acceptance of the world, or the taken-for-grantedness of the natural attitude. By engaging in self-conscious examination, it can help us reveal something essential. That is, it reveals something about the types of being we are. We are self-conscious, self-examining and self-interpreting beings. But how can we engage in self-conscious examination of how things appear to us? This is the next step in Husserl's phenomenological method and is known as the epoche. Part 2. Epoche and bracketing. As we have seen, in the natural attitude we sustain a tacit and permanent belief that the world exists as we perceive it and as we experience it. Another word for natural attitude would be natural belief. To do things phenomenologically, to think phenomenologically, indeed, to think philosophically for Husserl, requires us to reframe, even transform our relationship with the natural attitude. To do this, we must carry out the first step of the phenomenological method, what Husserl calls the epoche. The epoche demands hesitancy, a caution we should practice in our thinking. If we are to think phenomenologically, we ought to always begin by not bringing the existence or non-existence of the world into our reflections. Basically, we suspend our, our belief in the existence and non-existence of the world. The upshot of doing this is that it helps us resist our everyday preconceptions which we have about the natural attitude. 
the epoch a requires that we actively suspend or bracket out our judgment about the reality of the world. Basically, when we consider an appearance, we put to one side the existence or non-existence of the appearance, or that which the appearance is an appearance of. We accept that something is appearing to us and we become agnostics as to its reality or unreality. What we are left with then is a realm of pure appearances, pure phenomenality, which we can examine as we find them. Isn't this, though, starting to sound a lot like Descartes? We have someone doubting the existence of the world and retreating into the mind to, ex- well, to examine how things appear to it. Husserl thinks that bracketing is not methodologically a rejection of the existence of the external world. A suspension of our belief in the external world does not imply that the external world does not exist. Husserl is just not claiming that the external world does not exist, nor is he hypothetically doing it, as Descartes did with his method of doubt. All we are doing is suspending our normal, tacit assumptions about the reality of the external world. Put another way, we are accepting that the world exists, but neutralising our belief in the question of the reality of the world. Husserl thinks suspending our natural belief in the world will help us be rigorous about things which appear to us, or the things which are given to us. If we are to think rigorously, then we must combat any temptation to indulge in unjustified assumptions or natural biases. That is a hard thing to do, because as we have seen, the natural attitude is how we are, how we are disposed, how we have customary experience in the world. And that is the biggest assumption of all. Husserl elaborated the epoche in order to reach a form of self-reflection that grasp, or can grasp, an unmediated experience of the world. For Husserl, the epoche was an important methodological tool designed to inaugurate phenomenological self-reflection. Once we succeed in bracketing out the existence or non-existence of the natural attitude, then we can begin to enter the phenomenological attitude. Specifically, Husserl exhorts us to suspend our belief in the existence of the world. We say to ourselves, when examining appearances, the reality or non-reality of the world does not matter. It does not matter if the world exists or not, at least insofar as we are examining an appearance. And we can put that question of the reality or non-reality of the external world in abeyance, or put it out of commission until we can say for sure. This leaves us to only examine appearances, but there are so many appearances. What if we focus on only one? This leads us to the next step of Husserl's phenomenological method, and that is the reduction. Part 3. The Reduction The next step in Husserl's introspective method requires us to engage in examination of what particular appearances show to consciousness. The next thing we must do in our thinking, is to make sure we are examining only a particular appearance. To do this, to sharpen our focus and attention, we must grant all other appearances, what Husserl calls, and this is a bit of a mouthful, the index of epistemological nullity. This means the appearance we are examining needs to be indexed as zero. In a way, what Husserl is doing is deepening the epoche, because now, as we concentrate on what, an ep- what is appearing... We also need to be indifferent to and eliminate the possibility of transcendence, which is attached to the appearing or the appeared object that we are examining. 
In short, we let it equal to zero. The advantage of doing this or engaging in this mental exercise is that it helps us focus on what single appearances can show to us or how the object which appears can be seen in itself as it is, as it shows itself to us, with no fuzzy edges. This is where we begin to engage with what Husserl calls reduction. But what is the reduction or what is the phenomenological reduction? To reduce something is to break it down to its constituent parts. And this meaning is not irrelevant to what Husserl is talking about. When we activate the reduction, what we're doing is allowing the appearing object to show us what is essential about consciousness. In the basic sense, that is what the reduction means. The reduction makes explicit how consciousness is structured. Reduction derives from the Latin ducio, which means to lead. So we can ask, who is leading what and from where? Well, the appearing is leading the analyzing consciousness back to what is essential about itself. Reduction leads back to the pure structures of consciousness. But the reduction can only go so far. And by this I mean one cannot reduce forever. We get to the essential features of consciousness, from which we can go no further, or the essential features of how we experience particular phenomena, what's known as the eidetic reduction. We can never reduce further back than how things appear to us. So how things appear to us then reveals how consciousness itself is structured. One can also ask, where are we being led back from? The answer is from the natural attitude, or cognition of the natural variety. Once we have suspended the natural attitude, it becomes manifest that we are not dealing with objects of the natural kind, or in other terms, material objects. What we are examining is pure phenomenality. This is to say, objects appearing to cognition are not understood in material terms, or is determined in terms of external causes, but rather, at least at this point in the method, as stripped of everything except how the object appears. So, how does the object appear to us, and what does it show us? Let's go with Husserl's own example. Suppose we are examining or imagining how a cube appears to us in its immediate givenness. Well, what we need to do is attend to how the cube is showing itself. The first thing we can see is that the cube as appearing, is not given in its totality. We can imagine the cube, at least as it gives itself to us, only from a certain profile. Now certainly we can engage in mental exercises and turn the cube around in our mind's eye, but this leaves us rather where we are as the other sides do not appear. So the first thing the reduction shows is the inherent incompletion of phenomena as we perceive it, or perceive them. The cube shows itself only in profiles. So, a thing can only appear in a limited fashion. This appearing in a limited fashion is not because the object itself is two-dimensional, nor that the object cannot be seen from different angles, but rather, as something appears, we are restricted to a limited horizon of profiles. What the reduction reveals is the horizon of the phenomenon. By horizon, I'm talking about the limits of a phenomenon. The horizon is the distinct and non-fuzzy edges of the appearances which demarcate it from other phenomena. But here, who shall notice is something very important. The phenomena, as we grasp it, as demarcated, automatically seems to indicate beyond itself. This is what a horizon is, after all. Even if we think of the common sense of a horizon, 
It only indicates a limit of what we can see across, say, the view of the ocean. So we automatically intuit how the demarcation of our horizon is also directed beyond it. The horizon of the appearing phenomenon, then, say our cube or a cup, is the limit which demarcates the inside from the outside. But since one cannot have an inside without implying outside, then we see that the phenomena, as it appears, reveals a directedness to, or a directedness towards. The question is, towards what? For Husserl, the answer to this is fulfilment, as in the phenomena, as it appears, intends the totality of the object itself, even if it is not immediately given to experience. Therefore, for Husserl, I am never conscious without being conscious of something. Part 4. Intentionality, the meaningful object. One of Husserl's most important discoveries is what he called the notion of intentionality. Intentionality, too, becomes uh, hugely important for Heidegger. First up, we should begin explaining intentionality by explaining what it is not. It is necessary to realise that Husserl, when using the term intentional, is using it in a very specific sense. He is not referring to intentionality as it might connect to, say, a willed act, an expression of desire or purpose, or as connected with deliberation. So if I say, for example, I want to go to the shop or I intend to buy some groceries, Husserl is not using intention in that specific sense. Rather, he is using intentionality in a specific phenomenological sense. For Husserl, intentionality denotes the directedness or the aboutness of any conscious act. If all consciousness is consciousness of something, then consciousness is always consciousness of X, where X refers to any object we are intending. What the reduction has revealed is that consciousness is always directed towards a something. In perception, when I intend, say, this red cup, it does not fully appear to me. However, those aspects of the cup which do not appear to me are also constitutive of the meaning of the cup. However, as we are still in the phenomenological attitude, questioning what phenomena could reveal about consciousness, we could see now that any phenomenon is directed towards a specific fulfilment. What the reduction of appearances reveals is that consciousness is always geared towards fulfilment. Consciousness demands the fullness of whatever appeared object it is considering. Thus, whatever object I apprehend, at the same time I expect it to be a full object, or the object in itself. For example, if I see a friend who appears in the distance, the friend as appearance may or may not be someone else, but irrespective of how the experience is actually fulfilled in experience, prior to this, consciousness is automatically demanding fulfilment. So consciousness is always trying to fill in the gaps, basically. So what appears to consideration is this cube and not that cube. There are two significant implications to the intentional nature of consciousness. Firstly, what the reduction reveals is something about the attentive nature of consciousness. When something appears to us, when we focus on a particular appearance, say our cube, we experience a movement towards a specific fulfilment, towards this and not that. Thus, consciousness is selective. Specific objects fall in and out of focus. But the reduction makes explicit how the totality of phenomenon are at stake. 
or how the totality of phenomena are at stake are not directly given. Therefore, when I perceive a thing, I perceive this thing as something, say, as a cube, as a cup. This means that I perceive it as being the thing it is, as having its own essence. For example, the dice is, has uh, six sides. The second implication is that when I perceive, I perceive something meaningful, or at the very least directed towards meaning or fulfilment. What the reduction shows is consciousness is continually engaging in an act of transcendence, despite our best efforts. What is imminent to consciousness, for example, the cube which appears, is always directed beyond itself. The intentional object, in its directedness, transcends what is immediately given to consciousness. Another way of putting this would be to say that an object's transcendence is always already indicated in the imminence of consciousness. Thus, both imminence, that which remains inside, dwells within, is mutually implicated in what transcends it. Indeed, for the phenomenologist, the opposition of imminence and transcendence are no longer really tenable and need to be set aside. However, our cube or dice is meaningful always beyond what I am immediately conscious of at any particular moment, as well as any moment that follows. Overall, the consciousness, the epoche and the reduction reveals is intentional consciousness. Consciousness is essentially oriented towards the world. We can never take this further and say that consciousness is the world. This will be the route Heidegger takes, but for Husserl, at this point, it is satisfactory to claim that it is impossible to conceive of consciousness without some worldly relation. If we were to suggest otherwise, this would be to dispute the possibility of consciousness in the first place, because consciousness would only be able to perceive in a one-to-one -one relation to things. Thus, a core concept for phenomenology is world. The phenomenologist sees the world, the appearing world, as something that is always at stake, or in Husserlian terms, it is always a correlate of consciousness. So, in effect, we are back in the world, back in the natural attitude, after going through a method of reasoned introspection. That is the goal, so to speak. But there are many other things which the phenomenological attitude also reveals. Part 5. Space and Time By attending on the epoche and the reduction, we can also discern some other essential features of consciousness. This is the transcendental reduction, as Husserl calls it. If we go back to our cube again... The self or the I, which the cube appears to, is given in terms of profiles and perspectives, or in other words, it is given to the positionality of its object. If the cube intends beyond itself, thus it also indicates beyond how it is appearing now. Hence, what the reduction reveals is the temporal nature of consciousness. I perceive the cube, time elapses and there is still an eye perceiving the cube as well as indicating a fulfilment beyond the givenness of this immediate phenomenal experience. If we press this a little further, we can see that if time elapses, the phenomenal intends our horizon of past and present and future. I retain the immediate past, I experience a present, and there is a basic, even primordial anticipation of a future. For Husserl, there must be an eye present across the different phases of temporal consciousness which makes the experience of the object intelligible. This is effectively a Kantian point. If there was no eye present across all the instances of perception, there would be no consciousness of time, or no sense of time passing. 
The experience of time is of an eye which is constantly changing, but identical through all these changes. It is the identity of the eye which makes the appearance of temporal change possible. And thus for Husserl, following Kant, our immediate perception is inherently temporal. In addition to time, we can also see the reduction of the phenomena reveals the spatiality of our immediate perception. That consciousness always directs beyond its immediate givenness demonstrates to us consciousness not restricted to a two-dimensional viewpoint. At the very least, our consciousness is expecting, intending, directed towards the depth of a three-dimensional object, and thus an object which is intelligible in spatial terms. Only spatial beings can experience space, and the reduction shows consciousness directed towards fulfilment in space. Why is this the case? Because the phenomena we are examining, our cube say, shows us that appearance is both internally and externally spatially intelligible. Internally, insofar as the appeared object indicates or intends the aspects which are not immediately given, externally, insofar as the horizon of the appeared object relates beyond its immediate horizontal demarcation. Thus, to perceive at all is to perceive things in space, as well as time now. That is in relation to me and the relation of things among themselves, which makes up the horizon of what appears. This is what makes it possible for consciousness to grasp all things being equal, the difference between left and right, up and down, back and forth and so on. For Husserl, this will eventually demonstrate why our consciousness is embodied consciousness. By way of conclusion, Husserl's phenomenological reduction and the epoche demand that we suspend our judgment about the existence and non-existence of the external world. The natural attitude is a type of realism. We assume the world exists, but this is really an unthinking natural bias. Husserl thinks we ought to put this aside so we can focus on how phenomena appear themselves and in turn to be able to grasp what the evidence of appearance can reveal to us. The phenomenological reduction leads us to intentionality, the idea that all consciousness is consciousness of something, which in turn shows us that the basis of phenomenology was all along the reality of the world itself. Husserl's influence on continental philosophy is immense, either in existential phenomenology in France or through hermeneutic phenomenology in Germany in the 20th century. What Husserl inaugurated was a desire to return philosophy to the things themselves. Husserl's notion of intentionality especially showed us how consciousness is inherently world-directed. This meant that philosophy was to be concerned with concrete and real experiences. In addition, Husserl's philosophy is considered important because phenomenology is anti-reductionist without being, well, flaky, quite frankly. Husserl provides a method that helps us overcome reductionism or empirical psychology in a rigorous way. There is one other element that is critical for understanding what phenomenology is about as well as its different offshoots and that is that it is an exercise in freedom. Because we begin in the dispositions and assumptions of the natural attitude, Husserl envisaged phenomenology as a method through which all humans could liberate themselves from the unthinking natural biases that crew and congeal into habits over the course of a life. Phenomenology attempts to show how the world, as it is bluntly organised in space and time, with things relating to each other in more or less causal terms, is in fact, in conceptual terms, mythological terms, radically open. If we see the human being as one object among others, then there is no place for human freedom. But, for Husserl, phenomenology shows we can break out of that attitude 
the natural attitude, which shows that the very possibility of phenomenology, the very possibility of philosophy itself, is rooted in the practice of freedom.